Uh, Let's give our attention then to uh, the hearing of God's word, picking it up in verse 1 of Luke chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose, that is the Sanhedrin, and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. And arraying him in splendid clothing, He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! Third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Look down in the following verses Luke is going to tell you about the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. But I think before he leads us there, he wants to plant a question in our minds. And the question is this, why is Jesus being crucified? Why is Jesus 
The Son of God hanging on that tree. Charges have been brought against Jesus. Charges of blasphemy and treason. But again and again and again and again, Jesus is declared to be found not guilty. So why is Jesus condemned to death? By crucifixion. Now what's going on in this passage? You know, did Jesus just have a run of bad luck? Did he just happen to find himself in the wrong place at the wrong time? Is that what's going on here? Or is this, is this just a meaningless, unjust tragedy of history? No. What's so remarkable about this passage is the way I think Luke has a knack for telling us not only what happened to Jesus, but at the same time, he's telling us why it happened to Jesus. In other words, as he's telling you the historical facts of the gospel, of Jesus' trial and suffering and uh, condemnation and eventual, eventually his passion upon the cross. As he's giving you all of those historical details, Luke is also communicating to us the meaning and the significance of why this is happening to our Lord Jesus Christ. And as he leads us through the trial, or perhaps we should say the trials of, of Jesus, as he's hauled around from court to court, Luke is taking us to the very heart of the gospel itself. An innocent Savior taking the place of a guilty sinner. And so, in the first place, as we walk our way through this passage together today, I think the first thing Luke wants us to see clearly is the innocence of Jesus. The innocence of Jesus. Jesus has moved from scene to scene. Uh, He's now taken by the Sanhedrin, again, the Jewish ruling council, to be put on trial before Pontius Pilate. I think it's telling in verse 1 that we read about the whole company arose, and together they're, they're united in will and purpose. And that purpose is to see Jesus crucified, to see him put to death. And so they move from their own kangaroo court where they determined in legal terms what they had already illegally determined in their hearts, that Jesus is a blasphemer worthy of death. But you you see their problem is the Sanhedrin did not have the authority to enact capital punishment. This is how the Roman... The Roman Empire worked. They allowed local governments to have some level of jurisdiction, but they maintained, Rome maintained the right of capital punishment. And so in order for the Sanhedrin to have Jesus condemned to death, they needed to bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate to accomplish their will. Now here's a note of discrepancy. It's interesting, isn't it, that In in their own court, they charge Jesus with blasphemy. Now as they haul Jesus before Pontius Pilate, what's the charge? The charge is now sedition. 
Well, it makes sense if you think it through. The reason for this, I think, is pretty straightforward. Because if they bring this issue of Jesus being guilty of blasphemy before Pontius Pilate, what do I care about your religious squabbles? Get this out of here. This is a waste of my time. But if you bring before Pontius Pilate a man of some popularity, as Jesus had at the time, and say, here's a man who's going about the region, and he's misleading the nation, and he's guilty of insurrection. Well, suddenly you have an issue that Pontius Pilate will take a personal interest in. But of course, their charges are completely false. Think about the grounds of evidence that they give for this charge of treason. He's telling the people that they shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. Now, immediately you should be thinking, hang on a second, didn't we just read a couple of chapters ago a conversation that Jesus had with the religious leaders within the precincts of the temple of Jerusalem this very same week? And didn't they bring the question to him, should uh, we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, anybody got a denarius? Somebody brought a denarius coin out and Jesus asked the question, whose image is upon this coin? Caesar. Then give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But since the image of God is stamped upon your life, remember to give to God what belongs to God. You see, Jesus was teaching his disciples to be the the very best of citizens. And as Pilate is listening in on their their accusations and the grounds of their charges, and as he's asking questions of Jesus, Pilate sees through the whole thing. He sees exactly what the Sanhedrin is up to. They see, he sees that the Sanhedrin views Jesus as a problem that they want to get rid of. And Pontius Pilate is their means of getting rid of Jesus. But as we'll see as the story unfolds, even though he saw through the whole thing, he was a man of desperately flawed character. But at least at this point we see that he had enough grasp of Roman law and justice to say, I find no guilt in this man. I've I've heard your case. I've asked the questions. And my verdict is not guilty. Now, friends, you will, we need to stop there and say this. You will not understand this chapter in the Gospel of Luke unless you grasp that here. And on at least six more occasions in this chapter alone, Jesus is declared not guilty of being innocent of all the charges that are being laid against him. But then the Sanhedrin goes on to tell Pilate and they persist and say, well, look, Jesus is teaching all over the place, even up in Galilee. And so Pilate's listening in here and he discerns a way out of this mess. Here's his ticket out. Oh, he's speaking up. Maybe he's a Galilean. And so Pilate asks if he is a Galilean, and when he finds out he was, he seizes the opportunity afforded to him by the legal system to have him tried under the jurisdiction of his residence instead of the jurisdiction of where he's being charged. And so he sends him over to Herod, who happened to be in Jerusalem at that very time. And so when Herod saw Jesus, verse 8, we read, he was very glad. 
He was glad because, well, this was going to be fun. He wanted to see a show. He wanted to see Jesus do a sign. This was, uh, this was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded in a drunken stupor. This was, this was Herod who, at one point, was terrified as he heard about the Lord Jesus because he thought perhaps this Jesus is actually John the Baptist come back from the dead in order to, in order to haunt me. But of all of that's in the past. And his conscience seems to have gone completely quiet. And you know, as we think about Herod together for a few minutes, I think it's right to say Herod, Herod is kind of like the man who can go to church Sunday after Sunday, hear, hear the overtures of grace, hear the, the word proclaimed, the invitation to faith and repentance in light of the seriousness of our sin and our need, and to, to walk away and it's really like water off a duck's back. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful to be able to go and hear the word convict me, call me to repentance, and then go home as if it went in one year and out the other? Well, my friends, that's not wonderful. That's, that's being like Herod. And your need is desperate. This was Herod's situation. Here, here's a man who gathers the chief priests together, listens to them, hurl their false accusations at Jesus. And here is a man who encourages his own soldiers. Think about that. His own soldiers, his most disciplined men to obey, who, who are called to obey his will, to, to mock and deride the Lord Jesus. They treated Jesus with utter contempt as if he were guilty of the things he were being charged with. And and then Herod joins in on the fun. They had their sport with the Lord Jesus. They dressed him up in royal robes. And when they were finally done with him, they sent him back to Pilate. Now, my friends, regardless of what you think of the Lord Jesus, I hope that you can at least see that this ought to break your heart. For the Lord Jesus, who has been declared by the highest authority in the city of Jerusalem, to be innocent of all charges against him, to be treated with such contempt. But you know, I think it's something we have to say as we reflect upon this, that what we are seeing here in Herod's court is not a unique event. And actually, this is something that people do each and every day. Treat the innocent and lovely Lord Jesus with utter contempt. To mock him and deride him, and for some it even descends to the point of being a matter of fun and games. And all the while, consciences are quiet and clear. And that's because nothing touches their consciences any longer. But you see, as we look at this, we have to say they are the most desperately needy people in the world. Some of you might know the Welsh preacher John Elias, Welsh preacher in the 
in the 19th century, or the 18th century, excuse me. John Elias was uh, buddies with his local blacksmith who helped him out with his transportation needs. And uh, I guess the equivalent of having your tires changed, John Elias went to his local blacksmith to have some uh, shoes, new shoes put on his horse. And on one occasion, he went to see his blacksmith, and as he went in, he heard the loud banging of the hammer striking the anvil. Bang, bang, bang. I need a piece of metal up here to hit right now. Um, and uh, it turned out the blacksmith had just gotten a new dog. And every time he struck the anvil, the dog would yelp and cry out. Well, John Elias left for a few weeks on a, a preaching trip, and he came back a few weeks later, and he went to see his friend, the blacksmith, again. And as he's walking in, he hears the sound of the hammer pounding away on the anvil. But there's no corresponding bark. And he walks in, and he sees his friend the blacksmith standing over the anvil and the dog is lying fast asleep at his feet. My friends, that is what can happen to your conscience. And there is nothing in the world more terrible than to have a peaceful conscience when you actually have no peace with God. There is nothing more awful in all the world to have a quiet, peaceful conscience without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was Herod. This was Herod's condition. He sends Jesus back to Pontius Pilate. So they've taken him from the high priest to the Sanhedrin to Pontius Pilate to Herod. Now back to the man whose name we just mentioned a moment ago when we confessed the Apostles' Creed. Before Pontius Pilate, he suffers. And so he's on trial before Pilate, and mob violence breaks out. That's the only way to describe this. Mob violence breaks out. My friends, this is Jesus we're talking about. This is not some Sunday school figure that we've talked. This is not some figure on a stained glass window or some religious guru. This is our Lord Jesus we are talking about, and mob violence breaks out against him. And now we see Pilate's character really coming out into the open. He can't hide it any longer as the pressure mounts. He tries again to fall back on the Roman justice system and say, I've, I've examined him before you, and I do not find him guilty of any charges against him. Neither did Herod. But then he says... Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now, what, what kind of logic is that? And what court of law would that stand up in? I find him innocent of all charges, so I'm going to have him beaten and released. Now, you see what Pilate is trying to do. He's trying to satisfy the bloodthirstiness of this crowd and say, look, I, I understand what you're asking me to do. But I find this man innocent of all charges, so let me do this for you. I'll have him flogged, and we'll let him go, and let's just leave it at that. Can we, can we come to that agreement? But the mob wouldn't have it. They sensed he was ready to cave to their demands. Every time Pilate tried to fall back on what he was saying, I find no uh, guilt in this man, therefore I will punish and release him. 
The crowd shouted all the more. Over and over again, they, they cried out, I think, what has to be two of the most terrifying words in the New Testament. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then they began to call out for a man named Barabbas. Crucify Jesus and give to us Barabbas, the murderer. Give us the murderer and crucify the innocent one. And Pontius Pilate caves. And hands Jesus over to their will. Incidentally, before we move on here, some of us have experienced injustice in this life at the hands of civil courts, civil authorities. It's worth mentioning here, I think, that we have a Savior who knows what that's like. But let's keep going here because I think what Luke wants us to see, in addition to the utter innocence of Jesus, is now he wants us to see the substitution of Jesus. This is why I said at the beginning that Luke has such a knack for not only telling us what happened to Jesus, but why it happened to Jesus. You know that Luke is writing this gospel some years after these events, after the church has had time to reflect upon the death and resurrection of Christ and began to see its significance in light of the teaching of the Old Testament. And they began to see how Jesus' experience fulfilled all of these Old Testament Bible prophecies. Uh, the kings of the earth would gather together, stand against the Lord and his anointed one. Or you remember that occasion when a Philip runs into the Ethiopian eunuch who happens to be reading Isaiah 53 about the suffering servant. And he's saying, I have no idea what this means. And Philip helps him to see that Jesus was, was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before whose shears is silent. Did you notice? And before with the Sanhedrin. Again and again and again and again as questions are asked of Jesus. He remained silent. Gave no answer. So Luke is saying to us through this story, do you see what's happening here? Do you see that Jesus is the promised suffering servant, despised and rejected by men? Do you see that he's the Lord's anointed one? Do you see that he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? And do you see that Jesus is standing silently? Because while judged to be utterly innocent, he is prepared to be treated as though he were guilty. And how significant is it that he is, he is innocent of, but condemned for blasphemy and treason? You know, which perhaps you maybe noticed as we were reading, if you connected the dots, are actually the crimes of Barabbas. A Barabbas is charged with uh, treason and murder. But murder in the Bible, the world of the Bible, is a capital offense. Why is it a capital offense? Because murder is an offense against the image of God. So you see, what, you see what's being acted out here. The man who was guilty of blasphemy and treason was being set free because the man who was the son of God was going to be crucified. And I wonder, I wonder if it ever occurred to Theophilus. You remember Luke wrote this gospel 
for Theophilus. I wonder if it ever occurred to him that these are essentially my sins. Blasphemy in that I have made myself the center of the universe rather than God. That's our essential sin, isn't it? It's so basic that we're not even aware of how often, how much we do it. We're blind to the fact that we have made ourselves the epicenter of our world instead of placing God at the very center of our lives and our families and our, and our homes. And treason in that we have denied the Lord his absolute kingship over our lives. It's a rejection of his rule over us. And you see, this is the story of the gospel that Luke is telling us. Jesus, again and again, innocent, undefiled, pure, holy, spotless. Me, traitor and a blasphemer of God most high. And you see, in the amazing grace of God, though, Jesus, the Son of God, is the one who is crucified And Barabbas, you and I, are set free. My friend, if you want to, I want to to say this to you today. If you want to understand how serious and how awful your sin is, the seriousness of blasphemy, the seriousness of how awful your treason is, don't, don't compare yourself to anybody else. Don't start looking around and making comparisons between your life and their life. Go to the cross. Go to Calvary and the events that led Jesus there the 24 hours beforehand and say, if this was the only way for my sins to be pardoned, then how Awful my sin must really be. And so you see, Barabbas does not stand merely as an individual. He represents us. Justly condemned to die. But Jesus. And Barabbas goes free. And you know, here's another amazing thing about this story. I wonder if you've ever noticed this. The name Barabbas means... Son of the Father. Bar Abba. Son of the Father. Now we don't know if Barabbas ever became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if he did, he was able to say, My name is Son of the Father. I am the Son for whom the eternal Son of the Father took my flesh, bore my judgment, paid the penalty, set me free. That I might live as the son of the father. Now we, we don't know if that became true of Barabbas. But the really important thing dear friends. Is it can be true for you and me. And so as we look at what happened to Jesus. And the significance of what's going on here. One of the questions I think we need to ask ourselves. Is have I, have I really seen how awful my sin really is. Because there is no way. To enter into the joy of being a son of the Father apart from seeing how serious and awful our sin 
truly is. There just isn't. Just isn't. You see, there's no way to see the amazing grace of God unless you begin to see why that grace is so amazing. And so the gospel's first word to us is, have you, have you seen your sin? Have you seen your condition? Have you seen how much the Lord Jesus has suffered for sinners? A few weeks ago, we were <coughs> looking at the Garden of Gethsemane passage together. And I know I said to several of you that the Garden of Gethsemane passages have become some of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And do you know why? Because, because they definitively show me how far my Lord Jesus was willing to go in order to set me free. That he was prepared to drink down to the dregs, to the last drop, that cup of cursing in order that that blood-bought cup of blessing might be placed in my hands. And so I wonder, has it, has it dawned on your dear, dear friend, dear brother and sister, that when Jesus was being falsely accused, mocked, derided, beaten, mistreated, hauled around from court to court, that one of the reasons he remained silent is because you were on his heart. He knew what he was doing. Although he was without fault, he was prepared to be treated as if he were guilty in order to take away our guilt before God. And has it, has it dawned on you that the, the issue of your acceptance with God, just make this application in, in passing here, because this passage has so much to teach us about assurance. Some of you struggle to to really believe that God accepts you. Well, look closely at this passage and dwell upon its truth because it's showing us that God's acceptance of you is not based on something in you. It's based upon something that Jesus has done for you. It's based upon something that Jesus has done outside of you. And living a perfectly righteous life. And then in standing in the place of sinners. In order to receive in himself all that their sin deserved. And so this passage has much to say to us about our assurance of God's acceptance of us. But there's one final thing I want to say. If you're here today and you've, you've never trusted Christ or you're thinking about what the Christian gospel is all about, what Christianity is all about, well, this story has something really important to say to you. Do you remember the question I raised at the beginning? Why is Jesus hanging on the tree? Why is this innocent man being crucified? And the answer of the gospel is that he was, he was on the cross so that those who are justly condemned by their own sin may be set free to live forever as son or a daughter of the Heavenly Father. That's why Jesus is on the tree. Won't you trust him today? Let's pray together. Father, 
Thank you so much for this gospel because we know that this gospel originates in your eternal love for your people. And Lord Jesus, as we reflect upon all that you have done for us, as we look at this passage, at the end of it, all we can find ourselves saying is, Lord Jesus, we give ourselves away. We give all that we have, all that we are, um, into your hands. And we rest in your grace, and we pray that you would have uh, your sovereign uh, claim of our lives. And Lord Jesus, we pray that uh, you would help each one of us here today to make that confession, to entrust our lives to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.